realize that my sin was an offense to him. It was an offense to God. We, we serve a, a holy God. And yet I was very aware of my unholiness, my sinfulness. And, and when I recognized that I am no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness, that was good news. And then as we uh, engage in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a, amazing to me how the gospel has changed my life. It doesn't surprise me anymore because I understand the gospel and I understand what's going on in, in Scripture and God's big plan from, cre- from before creation until consummation. God has, has a plan and he's included you and me in that plan. So I invite you today, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you would, uh, that you would do so today. We're going to touch on the topic of sin today, and it's going to be, it can be an uncomfortable topic, but uh, I hope that as we, as we engage in this, uh, you'll see the, the, the victory that we have in Christ. I wanted to start off this morning with a, a question that really kind of hits us all right between the eyes, and that is, why do Christians gather together? Why is it that we, we come into this place? Why is it that we come together on Wednesday nights? Why is it that we have men's Bible studies and ladies' Bible studies and teen Bible studies? And, and, and why is it that two or three gather together around breakfast or lunch or dinner or a late-night snack? Or maybe, maybe you come together as a group and it's in the middle of the night because you're all working you know, different crazy hours. Well, why is it that we as Christians gather together? You might be thinking I'm going to jump into Hebrews 10 and say we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But that's not, we shouldn't do that, but that's not where I'm coming from. Why do we gather together? Because we are family, and that's what families do. Think about, we were just coming off of of, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, right? I mean, this is a new week, right? Sunday's the first day of the week. Thanksgiving was last week, all right? So I can talk about this in the past tense, but we're family, and that's what we do. We, uh, people travel all over the country during this time of year to be with one another, uh, to experience whatever their tradition of thanksgiving might be. The same will be true of Christmas. People will be traveling. But that's what families do. Families get together. And so as we think about this, our family is like no other family. Now, it's true in the sense that as Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, we are like no other family because it doesn't make us better. We're just not like all of them in the sense that we have our gifts, our abilities. Uh, God has called this body and all its various members together for his purposes here in New England. Uh, but we can actually celebrate and say our family is like no other in the sense of the, the, the family of God across the globe is like no other family. We come together week after week, and we highlight this in the beginnings class and in, and in the community class uh, we highlight this as the idea that there's something that brings us together. And so our family is no, like no other family because we are so diverse and yet so unified. We are diverse. We have totally different backgrounds, totally different positions in, in our economy and, and, and what we might earn and uh, totally different in terms of you know, our senses of humor. Some of, us, some of you love my humor. Some of you hate my humor. You know, thankfully, the ones that love it tell me the ones that hate it kind of keep it to themselves, okay? But, you know, I, I'm wired as Greg, and that's, that's, why I, that's why I'm here. I'm here as Greg this morning because I'm part of this family, which is part of the family of God. And, and our family is like no other family because we come together with all our, our diversity, 
and we stand unified. But what are we unified in? And that's the important topic that we all have to establish. It is our unity is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to say this over and over again in many different ways, but it really is the only thing that brings us together. Um, is there anything more powerful than the gospel? No, there's, there's larger groups of people that will meet, and they will be unified on some other aspect. Once, but once that meeting is done, that's all they have in common, and, and they go off in their different lives, and then when the next meeting comes for that, you know, they'll, they'll gather together. But when we think about the church the global church, the church of all history, the church since the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we think about that church, there's nothing more powerful than what God has done through the church, and it's through the power of the gospel. And folks, that's why we gather together. And that's why we're going to look at this text that we're going to look at, because nothing would make Satan happier than to see our unity as a family hindered. We're going to be talking about sin. We're, going to, uh, we're actually not going to talk a whole lot about Satan because he kind of comes on the scene in verse 7. Well, actually, verse 8. But, but uh, anyway, just bear with me. Uh, this is true. We know this is true because of what Satan has done in history. Sin was brought into the world through, through Satan tempting of Adam and Eve. And by sin... That, that, caused, that brought man to a fall. When they sinned against God, death came into the world, and, and nothing made Satan happier, I believe, than at that moment. And Satan continues to work in lives today, and he continues to try and hinder us from worshiping the only true God, from, from recognizing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go. Satan is behind the fear of man. Satan is behind the, the various levels of anxiety we have about our faith and, and you know, how do we communicate? I'm not worthy. No, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, and you are called to be a messenger of the gospel into the context that you live in. And we are called to that. It's something that, that is because that's what family does. In the family of God, we talk about Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. But nothing would make Satan happier than to hinder that. And he will try to do it, and we should not let him. All right? So as we go into uh, this, this question, this is what we covered last week. How do I know that I'm a child of God? And we hit on a few different uh, aspects of this. But uh, one of the things I pointed out is there ought to be a family resemblance. I'm, I'm a child of God. Well, do I look? I got to get away from the look because you might think that this is not the look of a Christian, right? This is the look of a preacher on a Sunday morning in Merrimack, New Hampshire, uh, amongst a bunch of conservative Christians, all right? Uh, but I will say, and this is what I've worn most of my ministry years. But if I'm in my PJs, which I did one time at another church, right, at Cornerstone, I showed up, I actually left, changed into my PJs, came back in, and my slippers and everything, to demonstrate the very fact that it's not what I'm wearing that makes me a Christian, it's, it's what I believe, and it's what you believe. And so as we talk about, is there a family resemblance, do your actions, your words, do they portray can you be accused of being a Christian? That whole question. Can you be accused of a Christian because of the, what you believe, the way you act, the what you speak? Would people even know? And so this is the idea. There ought to be a family resemblance to our God as our Father and us as His children. So we talked about a few things. We said, how do I know that I'm a child of God? And I put these in the first person. Uh, if they're true, then this, this should be, if you believe you're a Christian, then this ought to be true of you. I seek to live in a way that honors Him. Do you wake up in the morning, 
with the intent of honoring God. At what point in the day does it strike you? Oh, my faith actually is supposed to have an impact on my day. It doesn't mean you have to wake up and spend three and a half hours on your knees, you know, reading scripture and praying. Very few people actually do that. But there ought to be this idea that when you wake up in the morning, a recognition, I'm a child of God, and I'm called to live like one, and I should seek to live my life in a way that honors my Heavenly Father. Secondly, how do I know that I'm a child of God? I rejoice in the love God has for His children. I reworded this from last week. I put it in the first person again, but also it's the idea, I don't just rejoice in the love God has for me. I do that. But our Christianity is different. We're family. And I'm happy for family. And so I can rejoice in the love God has for his family, all his children. No matter what they look like, no matter what they act like, if they're a child of God, I can rejoice in the love that God has for those other people. It's what family does. How do I know I'm a, I'm a child of God? My godly way of life is rejected by those around me. Now, I, I realize when I write that down there, if you work in a church setting or in some sort of vocational ministry, this might be a bit awkward. My godly way of life is rejected by those around me, right? Where are you working, right? Well, I work at Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, and, and so in this case, my godly ways are, are uh, mimicking the, other, the godly ways of my coworkers who are actual family, actually family. So a godly way of life, but most of us don't work in a church environment. We work in a, a business environment. Maybe we're surrounded by even family who are unbelievers, and so we can say, my godly way of life is rejected by those around me. Have you ever experienced someone making you uncomfortable because of the way you're living out your life? Um, usually we're afraid of making others uncomfortable because, you know, well, if I, if I do this, they're going to think I'm a holy roller, old terminology. They're going to think that I'm, I, I think that I'm better than them. And, and you know, you're, you, can we come up with all this wrong thinking which is all tools of Satan to, to trip us up and hinder our witness. And so my godly way of life ought to be rejected by some of those around us in the sense of, because if they're given to the ways of the world, if they're children of Satan, which again, we won't cover today, but we'll cover next week. If they're children of Satan, obviously they're going to reject the way if you're living for God. He does not want you doing that. So Ask yourself, this is one way you know that you're a child of God. When you're living, not in a self-righteousness, not in a way that actually makes people feel like they're, they're, uh, they ought to be you know, bowing in your presence. Right? It's the idea, when you're genuine, a genuine Christian, genuine living out your faith, seeking to honor Him in all that you do, there's going to be people out, here that don't under- out there who don't understand you and that will actually reject you as a result of it. And it will happen. And I'm sure it's happened to most of us in the room. But it should be at least a sign that something's right. Now, again, there's all ways that Christians, and I think, uh, I think Paul even mentioned it in his testimony, that you know, uh, all those other Christians that never spoke the gospel to that person. And, and, and so this is, we're all here to mature, all right? So how do I know I'm a child of God? The idea of seeing Jesus excites me. If Jesus were to show up at this very moment, which I'll be honest with you, it is a longing that I have more and more now than I have ha- ever had in my life. At 56 years old, I see the way of the world. I see the pain people are going through. And it would, you know, pain because of illness, pain because of sin, pain because of different things going on in life. And, and it's just like, Lord Jesus, come. You know, let's just be done. Let's just uh, roll everything up and let's get on with this eternity thing where the sin isn't around anymore. 
But how do, how do I know I'm a child of God? The idea of seeing Jesus actually excites me. But it doesn't just excite me like, ooh, I'm a Christian. I get to spend eternity with heaven. No, it actually excites you to the point where you choose to live for him. Your, your daily course of, uh, of, of action is somehow influenced by the fact that Jesus is returning. And, and if that's, I hope that excites you. Uh, if you're not a believer here this morning, that, see, we have all kinds of Christianese, Christian terminology that we use, and we may make you feel uncomfortable as a result of it, and we never mean to make you uncomfortable. But we stand before you today, whether you're in this room or joining us online or watching us later on, we're standing here unapologetically saying that we serve a risen Savior. And we would like to invite you to know Him. And, and part of knowing Him is, is knowing that He's coming again. Praise the Lord. All right? Let's live our lives in light of that. So as we talked last week, it was this, this idea that a child of God displays the character of God. In other words, there ought to be a family resemblance. God is holy. We ought to be characterized by holiness. All right? Um, God is omniscient. He knows all things. We will not attain to that level of knowledge, but we ought to continually be learning and growing and seeking him out and, and, and maturing in our faith. But a child of God displays the character of God. If you're a parent here this morning, you know that your children manifest characteristics of your family. And sometimes you're excited about that. Sometimes you're like, oh, no. But we, as being children of God, there's nothing deficient in God. And so as we, as we display his character in our lives, he is glorified. And that's what we ought to be doing. Specifically, last week, we looked at verse 29 and, and verse of chapter 2 and verse 3 of chapter 3. And we saw two ways that... Uh, that we, this wasn't up last week, this slide, but it's uh, a child of God displays the character of God in two areas. One, we have righteousness, and the second one is purity, right? Or, or yeah, pure, yeah, purity. Uh, everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That's the good news. It's not that you, you live righteously and therefore you're approved by God. No, you are adopted by God, and that enables you to live righteously. All right? You don't have to, for those of you, again, that, that aren't familiar with, with Christianity, you don't have to prove your worthiness. You're not, and none of us are. Jesus Christ is worthy, and he is the one that has redeemed us by dying on the cross for our sins, and uh, his righteousness has become ours. He freely gives it to you, so we invite you. The third, uh, the third verse of chapter 3, everyone who has this hope in him, what's that hope? It's the hope of the gospel. It's that hope that, that gets us out of bed in the morning, right? Uh, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is the idea that our, our, we're supposed to, to uh, display the, the righteousness and the purity of God. Listen, if we have this hope, we're, we are called to where it's the idea of rubber meeting the road. It's the idea of living out our faith. To just believe that God is righteous, to get, just believe that, that he is pure, is not enough. Right belief with no action is just right thinking. Our faith is tested when we have to put it into action. And so we say everyone who has this hope takes action, purifies himself. There's this aspect of, and that's, believe it or not, it's kind of what we're all doing right now. We, why do we come together? Because that's what family does. But why do we come together? To sit under the preaching of God's Word, the preaching and teaching of God's Word, because it's, it's the point where we, we are in the process of purifying ourselves, of understanding what God's expectations are for us, and then putting it into action. If we never put our faith into action, we have to ask ourselves, are we part of the family of God? 
You have to ask that question. So as we look at verse, 1 John 3, 4 through 6, all right, that's what we're going to cover. But as we look at 1 John 3, 4 through 9 overall, this is, this is the big idea. Jesus' victory, and it was only his victory, Jesus' victory over sin calls us to a life of righteousness. It's very similar to the idea of displaying God's character. I get that, but we're in the same context. But listen, there's this idea that Jesus has victory over sin. And that is what should encourage every believer here this morning, that there is victory over this thing that Satan enjoys and Satan just tries to, to, to draw everybody into. But those who have come to faith in Christ understand that there is this another way of life. All right? So we're going we're gonna to look at this, the, the, uh, Jesus' victory, but we'll do it in the context of, of sin. So let's just read through. And we're going to go ahead and read through verse 9 because those are the verses in front of us, and we'll, we'll revisit the second half next week. Excuse me. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. This is when things start getting really interesting, and there's tension in this text, which if you read the family happenings, you would understand where that tension is coming from. But let's just see where that tension comes for. How does this hit you? Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Think that through. We've been told by John multiple times, abide, abide. If you're, if you're going to abide in God, you're going to obey God. And if you, are, if you have a habit of obeying God and, and out of faith, then you're abiding. And that, that is the idea. You can't do one without the other. And so we, we've been challenged multiple times by John. Abide in Christ. Abide. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. You, you abide by staying connected to Jesus. He says here, whoever abides in him, Whoever abides in Jesus does not sin. Well, I'm already sweating bullets up here because, wait a minute, I've been a believer since uh, 1985. You do the math, all right? 1985, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I knew about Jesus a lot sooner than that, but I came to faith in in that year. And, and, And when I think about that, I've done a lot of sinning between the time I came to Christ and I started my abiding in Him, right, and the and today. And there's never been a point in time where I have not had sin frequented in my life. All right? Now, we're going to get into some of those nuances of that as we go through. But this is a strong statement, and I think it should kind of make us all sweat bullets at some point. You know, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins, notice this, has neither seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Wait a minute, I just established that I'm a, that I, I, I'm a sinner, right? Uh, and it says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God." Now, I really thought this was going to be an easy sermon. I really did. I mean, I went into this one like, oh, this is good. This is a great sermon for Thanksgiving weekend because I'm going to be spending so much time with family and different things. You know, I, you know, I, I got this down. I got sin. I know, I know what sin is. I know what salvation is. I got this. 
This is not an easy text of Scripture. You know, it, it, it's not. There's a lot of tension going on here, as I think you can understand, because we recognize that we have sin in our lives. It's something that's, I mean, I, I've always said there are two kinds of people in the world, sinners and sinners saved by grace, because I've been both. I've been a sinner, lost in my sin, destined for eternity in hell, and I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. It is God's free gift to me that I have been moved from death to life, from darkness to light. I, all those ter- metaphors that we use, I have victory in Jesus, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Jesus did. And God has called me to himself, and I came to faith in Jesus, and that is what turned my life around. And that's what's turned your life around if you're a Christian today. So what is this idea of sin? All right? So we're going we're gonna to look uh, again. We're just going to work through this first portion here. But I want us to first establish the universal nature of sin. It's something that we believe from other areas of Scripture, other parts of Scripture. We know that there is, no, there is none righteous, no, not one. All right? Do you need me? Because you're hovering back there. I want to make sure. Well, you're freaking me out back there because I see you hovering. All right? It's Pastor Jeff, for those of you who don't, don't see. Okay. All right. All right. So... Um, the universal nature of sin is something that we should recognize, right, in, our, in, in the world around us. It, it is everywhere. Uh, but Scripture tells us that our, our good works are as filthy rags, and that we know that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're familiar with those texts as we think about Romans uh, that we read earlier. But think about this, the universal nature of sin. We see it uh, in, in this text, and the first part that we see is sin violates God's will. Think about sin. What is sin? What is sin? Well, in the text it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, depending on what translation you have this morning, different, different words are going to show up. One of the reasons this is a difficult passage uh, to maybe preach and, and understand is all the different translations that are out there regarding how they word and nuance these things. Uh, first of all, that word uh, whoever in many versions is, is uh, everyone, Right? Everyone commits, uh, who commits sin uh, commits lawlessness. It's, it's kind of an all-encompassing thing. But, but it doesn't matter. If th- in this context, it doesn't matter if we're talking about whoever or everyone because we know all have sinned. And it says whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. What is this lawlessness? It's the idea of violating God's standard. And, and, that's, and that's why we can, we can say sin violates God's will. Uh, this is... Christianity 101, this is the basics of faith. We ought to avoid sin, right? As believers, we ought to avoid it. Why can, how are we able to avoid sin as a believer? Romans 6 says, for you are no longer slaves to sin, but you're slaves to righteousness. We have a choice as believers to avoid sin and to follow God's will. But prior to that, remember in the Romans 6 passage, we are, prior to coming faith in Christ, we are slaves to sin. We have no choice. Sin violates God's will. It's part of our nature. We are, we are lawbreakers. It's not talking about the, the Mosaic law. It's, not talking, it's just talking about God's, whatever God would say you do, you're going to do the opposite. Now, it doesn't mean that people who don't, aren't Christians and are genuine Christians, it doesn't mean they don't do nice things and good things for people. They do, right? They, they give money to the poor. They, 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 they build hospital wings. They, they do all kinds of things with their money. But that, that's not what we're getting at. 
We're talking about sin as a pattern of life, as, as a real thing. It violates God's will. And John says to, the, to his recipients of his letter, whoever commits sin is guilty of breaking God's will. He says, indeed, sin is lawlessness. I think that's the ESV version is the idea of, of summarizing. So we are, we are lawbreakers prior to coming to faith in Christ. And we see, secondly, that sin keeps us separated from God. There's this, there's a reality that because we're sinners, there's this separation that takes place. Uh, in verse, uh, in, in, at the end of this section, all right, so I'm, I, I meant to tell you this. So we dealt with verse 4, and now we're jumping to verse 6. And we kind of think of two, two, sand, two pieces of bread sandwich, sandwiching all the good stuff in the middle, right? So we have, uh, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. This is the universality of sin. It, it is this, this is true of every person. Everyone sins and does ha, has, has neither seen him or known him prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm throwing the good news in there just so we can understand what's going on. But the bad news that the, 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 the gospel shines light on is that we are all sinners destined for eternity to hell when we're born into this world. That's the gospel truth. There's a sin nature that we all have because we are descendants of our father Adam. And because of that, we're sinners. And it's not only because of that. It's because from we little ones, we manifest that sinful nature and we sin in all kinds of different ways. So whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. And we're sinners, so what does that mean? Well, we're going to see that the universality, the universality of sin points to the need for a Savior. Without the bad news, the really the good news isn't so good, right? Oh, you need a Savior. For what? Well, I don't know. That's not the way it works. We need a Savior. Why? Because we're dead in our trespasses and sin, and that death that is going to keep us separated from God for eternity. Oh, I don't want that. Well, the good news is there's a Savior. And as we get into uh, this next portion, we see that the unique nature of the Savior. So we've seen the universality of sin, but we also see this unique nature of the Savior. This is Jesus is the only person who could do what we're going to talk about here. All right. As we look at verse 5, verse 5 is sandwiched between, duh, verse 4 and verse 6. And we see that Jesus is God who became a man. We're getting, we're, we've passed Thanksgiving. We're already listening to Christmas music. How many of you have listened to Christmas music since Thursday? Okay, yes, we are, yes, I know, I know, because she loves Christmas music. So Thanksgiving afternoon, it's Christmas music all the way, and then, you know, and I get tired of it sometimes, right? I do. I'm sorry. But, but it all, it, especially those songs that are praising Jesus and, and telling us about his incarnation, because that's what the, this verse says. And you know, this is John speaking to his recipients, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. What is that idea of manifested? He came on the scene for a purpose. Jesus was born in a, uh, by, by a virgin in, into a very uh, uh, poor environment. And, and, and nobody would have noticed if it hadn't been for God manifesting it through angels and, and different things and sending shepherds there. But it says, you know that he was manifested for a purpose. Jesus Christ came into this world to take away sins. This is, this is the beauty of the gospel. 
Jesus is also God who remains sinless. So it's, it's not only that, uh, he be, that God became man, right? The incarnation, that's what it's talking about here. It's, it's the fact that not only was Jesus sinless when he became a baby, he remains sinless through, uh, through his whole life and even now in the eternity. I, I put that in the present tense because Jesus is God who remains sinless. He, he didn't start sinning once he went into heaven, right? I mean, he's still sinless. Since the time he was born in this earth till this very day, the God-man is sinless. And that's, in, that's vital for us to understand and believe. Because we see, and in him there is no sin. This was a basic truth of the faith, which we believe in even today. Uh, the, the idea that Jesus never had sinned because if he had sin in his life, he could not die as our substitute. This whole text is really pointing to the sacrificial atonement, right? The substitutionary atonement that Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. And that's, that, was, that was probably the truth that pushed me over the edge from believing in Jesus as an historical figure and believing in Jesus as my personal Savior. The fact that he died for my sins and that if, he, if I had not if he had not paid for my sins, I would have to pay for them in eternity in hell. Remember Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, that eternal separation from God. So we're seeing the character, the unique character of Jesus Christ. It, it, we see this in, in the Gospel of John, talking about uh, uh, John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writing about John the Baptist, right? Uh, it says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said to his, the ones that were following him, Behold, remember that word? We covered it last week. It's the idea of look, pay attention, stop everything, pay, put your eyes on that person right there. And John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They were all pretty much Jews or, or Gentile converts to Judaism. And, and, and John, is, John the Baptist is saying, listen, the promise of the ages is walking in the midst. I'm getting ready to baptize them. And, and, and this, this person is the Lamb of God. As soon as those Jews and those uh, converts to Judaism heard uh, that a lamb, they know that a lamb was to be sacrificed. But it wasn't just any lamb. It was the spotless lamb. And Jesus is that spotless lamb. He had no sin. He was an acceptable sacrifice because he was the lamb of God, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John believed it. John the Baptist, he preached it. Jesus had his earthly ministry. And that has progressed all the way into this day for us to enjoy this truth. So we, we look at the unique nature of, of the God-man, that Jesus Christ, he's the only one. But we also see the unqualified nature of a Christian, and then we're going to look at the unqualified nature of the sinner. All right, what do I mean by unqualified? Well, according to the text, it says, whoever abides in him does not sin. This is, this is that the, one of the parts of this passage that, that uh, messes with our minds because it's the idea of, what do you mean, whoever abides in him does not sin? I've already touched on that, so let me just say this. If we're abiding, how is it that we're not sinning? And, and so uh, going back, it says the unique nature of a Christian. This is true of all of us. This is unique to Christians. This truth. We as abiders do not sin. What does that mean? Well, this is the way. I, there are literally eight or nine different views on what this means. All right? 
It's just, it's just all kinds of people kind of figuring this stuff out. Because this language that John is using is stark. It's unqualified. He's, there's no exception clause. It's saying whoever abides does not sin. If you're a believer today, this is saying that you're abiding and you do not sin. Well, what does it mean? Well, a, a lot of it will deal with the fact that this is talking about a, a, um, a, 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 in the present tense, in the now, it's the idea that this is a continual thing for believers that when we are abiding, we are not sinning. All right, And we are guaranteed that what Paul is not saying, he's not saying that there's somehow sinless perfection, that somehow you will never sin again. We know that's not true. He's already said it. He's already established that there's sinners and they need an advocate who's the, who's, who can speak to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. But he says here, whoever abides in him does not sin. So the way I decide, this is my own creation in this next slide, so take it with a, a grain of salt because it's not been vetted by a ton of scholars, right? But I think this is kind of true. I think this is true. I just, I think it is, right? In the act of abiding, a Christian cannot sin. Think about that. In the act of abiding, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the, ba- you are the branches, abide in me. We're being told by John, abide, stay connected to Jesus. And, and, and this is, notice the key word there is probably act, in the act of abiding. We are abiding in Christ. If you're a, 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 if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're part of the vine, right? You're, you've, been, you've been grafted in. You're not going to lose your salvation. We're not talking about losing salvation. But what we're saying is in the act of actually abiding, in other words, trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledging Him, and He's going to direct your path. When you're, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and not doing what you're not supposed to be doing, right? And, and you're trusting God in mean, that act of abiding. Is it possible to sin when you're actually trusting the Lord? No, because as soon as you sin, you're not abiding anymore. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but this actually makes sense to me. And so what we're supposed to be like, as characterized as Christians, is we're supposed to be characterized by acting, uh, acts of abiding. Looking at that day, whoever abides in him does not sin. If you're abiding in the Lord, you're not sinning at the moment you're abiding. This is saying more than that. But I'm saying in the practical application, this is the way it works. You cannot be characterized by sin and be part and, and, be, and be living the Christian life. You, if you are characterized by sin, if you are characterized by lawlessness, by, by going against the will of law, in other words, you're, you're characterized by it. It's part of who you are. If you're more like that and then you do some nice things once in a while that might, might appease you but not appeasing God because only Christ's sacrifice can appease him, then you've got to question your, your Christianity because we are supposed to be characterized by abiding. And that's what we do. And so when the preaching of God's word uh, goes forth, whether it be me or any other of the gifted preachers that come through this, this place, when the word of God goes forth and you experience conviction of the Holy Spirit, of sin in your life, that's a testimony that you're abiding because only those who are abide are going to be sensitive to their sin. And that's, his, that's what John's saying here. There are a group of people that he's, he's confronting this church. He's saying there are false teachers out there. There are antichrists out there. They're trying to deceive you. Verse 7, he's saying, don't let them deceive you any longer. You cannot call yourself or, or, or think yourself righteous and in good stead with God if your life is patterned by sinfulness. Consistent, 
continuous sinfulness. You can't do it. You can't be of the flesh and of the, uh, and of, of, uh, of the world and of Christ. We've established that. So in the act of abiding, a Christian cannot sin. But the unqualified nature of a sinner is that this, uh, we already looked at this verse, but it says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor know him. There's no, there's no uh, caveat there. There's no, it's saying whoever. Everyone who has, uh, everyone who sins has neither seen him or known him. This is talking about a life that's characterized by sinfulness. Whoever sins, it's the present tense. That is one of the, the easiest ways for me to understand this. And this is a predominant view of conservative Christians is the idea that by this being in the present tense, it's talking about that who, in, in the, their life is continually characterized by sinfulness. They've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why they say you can ne- you've never seen him or known him. Obviously, you're, you're, it's not talking about Christians who have fallen away because that's just not what the gospel is. The gospel is you have everlasting life. So whoever sins has neither sin. This is the unique nature of a sinner. This is true of all sinners. Just as abiding in Christ is true of all Christians, the unique, sinner, uh, the unique nature of a sinner is one who has never seen or never known Jesus. So a person who is characterized by sinning is not a Christian. That's my terminology. But folks, can I, I just say, uh, it's the idea of their pattern of life. It's not saying that we don't sin from time to time. And I know that there, um, and I'm, I'm starting to wonder if I already shared this, but I think I shared this in the first, um, first service. And as the idea, I've, I've listened to a few sermons about this text, and there's a very famous pastor, sermon, uh, preacher that, that said in his sermon, you know, he basically kind of sounded like that he can't go a few minutes without sinning. He's like, you know, I, he's preaching, and he's a fabulous preacher, and he said something along the lines, and I, it just showed me his humanity. It was like, no, dude, you know the truth. And the fact is, I'm not, there's not sinless perfection, but there's also this not, I don't believe the scripture teaches there's this idea that we can't go five minutes without sinning. I think as we mature in our faith in Christ, we're supposed to be abiding in the vine. And therefore, as we grow and mature, that abiding is supposed to, as family, we're supposed to display the characteristics of our Father. And we'll do that more and more. Uh, ultimately, we'll be like Christ when we're in His presence. But our life is supposed to be patterned after maturing in our faith. We call it, we call it um, sanctification. Right? This process of uh, there's definitive sanctification. We are brought from death to life. And then there's this progressive sanctification that says from that point forward, we should look more and more like Jesus. And that means sinning less and less. And so I don't know if we go a day without sin. I, I, ha- I would think that we probably, most of us don't. But I'm just saying, let's not put the restraint on God for our sinfulness. It's the idea of as we're abiding, we're not sinning. And, and so abide. But a person who's characterized by sinning, that's their, that's their uh, uh, what, what do we call that? Their, uh, well, their general way of life, right? Well, just modus operandi is what I was looking for, right? That's, that's the regular way of doing things, right? They're, they're not a Christian. And so, folks, if you are characterized by sinning a lot, like constantly, taking money under the table, you're, 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 um, you know, you're deceptive to your wife, to your kids, to your boss, you know, you know you're, you're, you are characterized by doing all kinds of things that the world says, well, that's okay. But standing, if Christ were to show up, you're like, no, 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 that wouldn't be. Please, make sure you're a Christian. 
And the only way you're going to know for sure is by looking at all those things. Are you abiding? Is that characteristic of your life? All right. Uh, as we get into verse 10, we're going to deal with the reality of deceivers, all right? So uh, that's where we're done. So I'm going to go all the way to the end. And look, I had all those slides. Oh, too far, too far. All right, there we go. Big idea. Jesus' victory over sin calls us to a life of righteousness. Folks, listen, we are sinners. And all the text is difficult to, to understand at some point. I do not want you to have the false expectation that because you've sinned, somehow you've lost your salvation. Some people preach that from this text. That is not what this text is saying because you take this text in the context of the whole letter as well as the whole Word of God. John is actually encouraging these believers that they are children of God. He says, last week, he said, we are children of God. In the now, we are. But there are these people out there that are trying to deceive you. And deceivers deceive, and deceivers are children of Satan. And we're going to look at that next week. But folks, listen, we can rejoice today that Jesus has victory over Satan. But we are, we are not experienced the fullness of that victory yet, but we will. And if you don't experience any victory over sin, then I'm asking you to consider who is Jesus and have you come to faith in him? Because we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. We have the ability to choose to honor God with our lives. And we do that through the power of God and through nothing else. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together. And Lord, I, I do rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, it's changed me from the inside out. It's changed me for eternity. I was a child of, of Satan, and now I'm a child of God. And I didn't do anything to earn that, Father. You and your grace and your love and your mercy. You pulled me from darkness into the light. You redeemed my soul because of what Jesus Christ did. And Father, there is a world around us going to hell. There's a world around us that, that has, that as many have come to believe in a watered-down gospel that somehow that Jesus is a nice person, and if I just live right, I can please God. It's, it's no, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we're, on our, we're all sinners on our way to hell, but we're in need of a Savior. And you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. And Father, all those who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. That call is a call that is based in faith in Jesus as the incarnate Son of God who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross, was resurrected the third day in fulfillment of the Scriptures, has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again. And Father, I pray that that's new to anyone hearing my voice, that they would bow the knee and ask our Heavenly Father, to forgive them of their sins because of what Jesus Christ has done. And then to seek to pattern their life in honoring you because of your great love. Lord, I pray that you would change hearts today as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.